This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, the program director of the online PhD, Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in palliative care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm very excited to be here, joined again by Connie Dolan, who is a professor in our program teaching in the very first course. And our guest today, oh my gosh, we're so excited, Dr. Joanne Lynn. So Connie, I'm gonna turn it over to you to introduce Dr. Lynn. So for our students, um, you will have be reading about Dr. Lynn in many of your articles and the background. I think um, uh, one of the things you've heard from some of our other interviews of how important um, Dr. Lynn was in the support study and how that was so grounding in many ways, good and bad. Um, and then her subsequent work in terms of research and quality, um, working at RAND, um, thinking about all the communication pieces with this. And so I'm gonna let her give more of a background um, because you can read more in the bio, but we always like to give more um, focus on hearing from the people themselves. So Dr. Lynn, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your background in coming into this and, and then we'll go from there. Oh, I sort of stumbled into the field early in my career. Uh, I was a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar for just a year and a half at George Washington's program. And, um, and then uh, I finished up my residency in that program and didn't really have much prospects uh, because I was pregnant in 1977. Um, you know, women doctors who were pregnant were very difficult to employ. So I was doing all manner of dumb things like triage at the VA and insurance physicals and so forth and got offered the opportunity to work half time at George Washington in the new geriatrics program um, doing the things that the geriatricians did not want to do. So that was the hospice program, which was a pilot program by Blue Cross, and the nursing home uh, residents who were not going anywhere, who they had figured had no real prospects, and the um, clinic patients who had been assessed and there was nothing reversible. So they thought they were throwing me, um, you know, kind of to the dogs, and it was wonderful. It was just a terrific nursing home. The hospice program was, you know, one of these missionary hospice programs. It was just a delight. The nurses were perfect. Uh, they uh, taught me everything I needed to know. At that time, the only uh, resource we had was Cicely Saunders' little book. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we were probably about the sixth hospice program in the country, um, entirely inpatient at the end of a wing of a nursing home. Um, the nursing home work itself was wonderful. The aides um, were just so devoted to the residents. It was a very old nursing home, um, very much sponsored by its community. And um, I just loved it. It was just wonderful. And so I started working. I was also half time at GW teaching ethics. So I was in the middle of all these court cases that were uh, brewing up about end of life care. And so I was writing 
Supreme Court briefs and, and going to various places to help consult on these cases that were very important in the 1980s. And um, worked with Hastings and worked with you know, lots of um, legal briefs and so forth about end of life care uh, while being a hospice doctor. And then um, got the chance to work with the President's Commission on Ethics and Medicine and um, pretty much wrote the uh, Deciding to Forgo Life-Sustaining Treatment uh, book that they put out, um, which was fairly groundbreaking at the time, um, saying such things as you shouldn't use a feeding tube um, in people with persistent vegetative state unless the family truly wants it, um, that dementia is a serious illness and, and should be treated as a serious illness. So those were sort of the groundings um, of, um, you know, of my work. And I was continuing as a nursing home doctor and a hospice physician and um, a home care physician for the city. Um, and uh, then um, Bill Knauss had developed a, a scoring system for ICU patients called Apache and was um, interested in expanding that to a larger population. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation leadership had just gone through a couple of really miserable courses with their parents, um, end of life care. So RWJ asked uh, Bill if he was interested in uh, trying to do something. And he said, but one condition is you have to have somebody who knows geriatrics and ethics. <laughs> and I was hanging around as a not fully employed person. <laughs> and, uh, so um, I jumped into that uh, having very little background in research. Um, and learned a lot. Marilyn Bergner taught me a tremendous amount about survey uh, research uh, before she died. Um, and Joan Tino was a terrific um, companion and uh, co-traveler. And the, um, the overall um, effect, would you like me to shut that off? That's fine. <laughs> I assume you can edit it out. The, um, the overall, uh, effect of support um, was very different than it was designed to be. I mean, for Bill Knauss and the people he uh, recruited from the five sites, um, the real uh, endeavor was around these predictive models. And Frank Harrell was terribly central in doing the statistics. And, and we taught the field a lot about propensity scoring and so forth. And, and it was a very good uh, endeavor on that side. but. Um, but it also failed. We did the best intervention that was known at the time, which was uh, to try to enhance people's understanding and enable their choices. And the bottom line was that it made no difference. Um, I mean, you can find some tiny differences in it, but it is basically a negative study. <laughs> um, and it documented that people had tremendous amounts of untreated pain, that they didn't know what was going on, that they... Um, just you know, sort of followed the flow. Uh, I mean, we documented a lot about what was going on, but the intervention didn't work. And there was quite a flurry of uh, articles and critiques saying we had done it wrong. That, um, you know, and we actually wrote an article in a supplement to, to JAGS about answering to the extent that we could these um, critiques um, about it. But it was very hard, and I think it is still very hard, to get the field to believe that the patterns of care are stronger than choice. Um, I keep pointing out to people that 
the revolution in the 70s in childbirth was not that women got the choice to be treated decently. It was that if you said nothing, you got treated decently <laughs> and you got support for breastfeeding and you got support for a natural childbirth and you got uh, support for bonding with the child and so forth. So now you know, the real revolution was a change in the pattern of care. And I think that it's all too easy to um, read. We had 130 or so articles out of support. Um, many were quite groundbreaking. Uh, the, the ones um, that I refer to most are the ones that show that uh, the patterns at the five different institutions were very determinative in what it was that people experienced. So um, yeah, the, the place that was in a rural area and everybody knew each other and you had the same doctor in the hospital as you had at home and they knew the home care nurses um, was just very, very different than the big urban hospital, which much to my surprise did not have a single doctor who had a DEA license in the community. They could not write a prescription for an opioid for a person being discharged. You had to go to your primary care doctor. I mean, the differences were just stark. Um, you know, in the community setting uh, that I was describing, the you know, if somebody died at home, everybody brought a casserole. If uh, and if somebody died at home in the urban setting, you had uh, the homicide squad right. show up. You know, the the community patterns are just terribly, terribly strong. And it's been very hard to get people to really work with that. We keep thinking that um, you know, one doctor, one patient, maybe a couple of family members can make the difference. And they can within a range. I mean, you can keep a person out of the hospital. You can make sure they get their pain treated. Um, but we also need to change those patterns and incentives. And that's been very hard to get the field to focus on. Um, so anyway, the support study did a lot of very good things, but much of its lessons are still not really uh, incorporated. We did a breakneck analysis to affect a Supreme Court case um, because we had interviews at various times ahead of death um, and, and <clears throat> hospital data. So we took the time of death and counted backwards. We've called it the Hebrew analysis. Because um, you read from the right to the left. And so we standardized the date of death and then looked backwards at how the person was and what they or their family were saying on various days. And it showed that a week ahead of death, it was in most illnesses, it was still quite uncertain that the person would die very soon. Um, so this idea that you could find the hospice patient six months out was just silly. You, know, you couldn't find the hospice patients two weeks out <laughs> um, at 99% reliability. You could at 50-50, but at 50-50, you were going to have a whole lot of survivals a, a year out. <laughs> so this problem of prediction has still not quite been incorporated. And you still see all these statutes that key to a six-month prognosis without ever saying whether it's a 50-50 or a 99%. And on that turns a thousand-fold difference in who's qualified. So you know, the, the fundamental statistics have just never quite become part of our common understanding and knowledge. 
Um, even though we had good data and support to show that you know, the average um, heart failure patient had a 70% chance, of, if I remember right, of living for, um, I forget whether it was two or three months, one week ahead of their actual death. <laughs> you know, the uh, lung cancer patient, lung cancer has changed a lot now, but the lung cancer patients were down to about 30%, but still 30% chance to survive for a few months a week ahead of your actual death. You know? <laughs> so it's, yeah. support has that data, but it's been very hard to get people away from presuming that they knew what they were talking about when they talked about prognosis. So anyway, that's sort of where we stood at um, 1995 when we published the support, the main support um, report. Well, I think you speak to a couple issues that are so interesting, right? Because one is, um, and, and Lynn has heard me say this before, you know, part of it, it was we moved, and you talk about this with the rural program, we moved everything from the community to these urban centers for our convenience, right? <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily help the community and that's communities you're speaking to are a community to itself, right? Every community has different resources and the way that it is. And, and so how do you support that? I think the other part that you speak to is um, it's an interesting part. And, and I, we heard about how the hospice benefit sort of was a uh, kind of a deal with the devil because what was gonna happen if we didn't have the hospice benefit wasn't good either, right? So it was sort of one of those compromises. But I think it also speaks to this part uh, based on what you're talking about with these percentages that even a week ahead of what people were dying, we're asking people to make this choice, right? And I was just listening to um, Respecting Choices, some of their courses yesterday, when they were talking about teaching basic advanced care planning, and they were talking with somebody and they were saying, you know, if I have a 10% chance, you know, I still want to live. Well, it's an interesting part, right? And, you know, when you think about some of our colleagues who've had serious illness, who had been doing this work, who still said they wanted full court press. I mean, so it's an interesting part about human nature and, and in palliative care, this living with serious illness and, and where are we kind of pushing patients? Um, so I think that some of the issues still stand to what you said in terms of, we aren't good prognosticators. And um, I think- oh, that And more important, we can't be. Right, we can't be. And then the <laughs> part that you're speaking to, which I think, you know, I'd be curious what you think about because based on what you're saying, I know that after support, we had this, you know, the whole Robert Wood Johnson initiative to focus on care at the end of life. And I think we we're trying to see how people did it. But what you're kind of saying is that was important, but really at the end of the day, we have to change the culture of a healthcare organization to make change. Now, maybe I heard that wrong for you, but that feels like something we haven't necessarily, we focused on the field, but we haven't necessarily focused on the cultural change at different places. Yeah, I mean, the, telling the results of the support study at RWJ um, was an experience. We, <laughs> we arrived at RWJ for a meeting. I remember it being at 10 a.m., might've been at 11, but it was in the morning and something had happened that required that it get moved to after lunch. So one of the RWJ communications people came in to tell us of their plans for how to disseminate the support findings, not knowing that it was a negative study. Mm. And so they had this whole array of things ready to go 
to show how valuable support had been. Three of the hospitals had already agreed to continue the intervention. And, you know, and Bill Knauss, I remember kicking me under the table saying, don't say anything. <laughs> you know, we, aren't, we aren't disclosing this until we actually have the meeting with the people at the top. And um, I mean, the most I said was, um, I hope you'll be here this afternoon. <laughs> but um, uh, because everybody assumed that we were doing a wonderful job and everybody loved the intervention. Uh, not, well, not everybody. I mean, there were some doctors who were a bit peeved, but mostly people really liked it. Um, but it didn't make any difference in anything we could measure. Um, so the, um, uh, so RWJ shifted and did that work in trying to get lots of community and, and local and state initiatives going and, and did a whole lot of PR about it. I mean, we got it in every major journal and newspaper and so forth. Um, and then Soros picked it up and I'm sure you've heard a lot of the Soros from Kathy and others. Um, but the, um, the field sort of took a, a turn at that point. Um, remember, I was working also in long-term care. So a piece of my life was in hospice care. Right. And a piece of my life was in um, home and community-based care and nursing home care. Very little in the hospital. I, mean, I did a little bit of hospital work, but I was basically in the community. And um, when we got together to do the first set of um, the standards for um, palliative, what became palliative care, um, I was on that committee. And I actually resigned before the report came out because I didn't want the field to be blighted by having a minority report that early in its development. But no one else would go along with training people for advocacy. Um, I said, the one thing we know in 1995 is that we don't want to be growing old in this system. <laughs> the one thing we clearly know is that this system is fundamentally wrong. And so we really need to be teaching people how to be effective in changing how the system works. And um, there just was no interest in that. People wanted to be academicians. They wanted NIH to be funding them. They wanted um, tenure. They wanted career tracks, you know, and uh, that's where we went. Um, and to this day, we still don't train people in how to go to a state uh, hearing or how to um, you know, understand what you need to do. I mean, we, we have organizations now that have hired people to do those things, but we have not really taught our participants, our, 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 um, the, the people who are really doing the work to uh, speak up. And you know, doctor types and nurse types are very, very poor at being advocates. Um, they're not like businessmen and they're not like uh, lawyers. Um, so we, um, you know, we assume that somehow the structure of our, of our systems is kind of okay or is somebody else's job. No, 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 it's our job. <laughs> and, um, and the fact that the field really turned away from that and from uh, long-term care um, has really troubled me. Yeah. Um, you know, palliative care has become caricaturized as um, you know, goals and symptoms. And as a consultant field, um, as you know, just like nephrology or cardiology, you call in the palliative care expert. Whereas I really saw it as the anchor of comprehensive care of very sick people. 
Remember, I was mostly in people's homes, even if it was in a nursing home, it was where they lived. And you really had to participate with the overall system. <laughs> and if you couldn't get food delivery, that was a real calamity. It was a calamity on your shoulders, every bit as much as anybody else. You couldn't just offload it. You know, if this person really can't get food tomorrow, you've got to figure out a way to get them food. <laughs> um, and that becomes the priority, not whether you're elegantly managing their cardiac drugs. Right. Um, so, um, and I always worked in wonderful teams. I mean, the hospice team was terrific. The nursing home team was just wonderful. Um, so it was a shared responsibility. I don't mean it was all on the doctor, but, but that was the whole point was that you, you had to develop a good team and you had to be, I mean, we went, to, we went toe to toe with the city. Remember Washington is sort of a city state. So right. we went toe to toe with the city over who could pronounce death because we ended up having to move people to the emergency room, move right. bodies to the emergency room, claiming they were still alive. And I had to ride ambulances to keep people, to keep the EMTs from doing CPR on a patient who I had pronounced dead because you couldn't pronounce death out of the hospital. <laughs> and um, so we finally got nurses able to pronounce the fact of death and the doctor still had to do the certificate, but the certificate could be done at a later time. Um, but you, know, you have to really work against those stupidities in the system um, to make it possible to do very different things. Um, when I started working in DC, uh, more than 70% of people died in the hospital. Everybody else went through the ER to be pronounced dead. Um, and by the time uh, I left for Dartmouth in 1993, my little practice, which you know, was George Washington's practice, um, had one-tenth of the deaths in DC and only 30% were in the hospital. Um, so you know, we changed our little system, but you know, and, and we had virtually 100% advanced care plans um, and they were prominent on the, the record, <laughs> um, but um, they weren't necessarily recognized when the person went to the hospital. Um, but the, the idea that um, we have mostly changed the course of the end of life for people who made it to adulthood and didn't get killed in an auto accident or a gunshot wound. Um, the people who died of illnesses or old age, um, we've mostly converted that to long-term care. I mean, even cancers are now long-term care. People live with them a very long time. Um, and yet the field has still stayed with um, goals of care and symptoms and doesn't really um, get into the more dominant way people live with serious illness, which has become um, living a long time with very serious disabilities and illnesses. And- um, Jump in and ask one thing. So you, you talked about how it was so expensive and so forth. Is that what prompted your, you've been very prolific in publishing books. Is that what prompted books such as The Common Sense Approach to Improving Palliative Care Without Losing All Your Money? Well, I mean, money has a piece of it because, I mean, doctors and the medical care system had been feeding at the trough in just an outrageous way. When I first came out of um, medical school, I actually took a course offered by the medical society on how to set up an office, you know, back when that was the thing to do. And, and the aim for a physician income uh, was said to be twice that of the average school teacher. 
What are my colleagues doing earning half a million a year? Not in geriatrics, not in palliative care, but in cardiology and interventional uh, work. It is not uncommon to find people expecting to make a quarter million a year. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are not a lot of school teachers making half of that. <laughs> um, and obviously the insurance companies and the big hospital systems and so forth are just making money hand over fist and expecting to have budgets that um, kind of eliminate my last three zeros. You know? So in, in the world of home care, where you're dealing with families, it is a big problem to incur a thousand dollar debt. Yeah. In the medical care system, a thousand dollar debt is a thousand dollar error is just irrelevant. You know, we, we do that every day. Um, <clears throat> so I, I call it the decimal point error that in home care, um, and then you go to a nursing home care and then to a hospital type care, you're, you're moving a decimal point across each time as to where people bother to care. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the average American is still earning um, on the order of fifty to sixty thousand dollars. Mm. You have to be thoughtful about the even the copays and deductibles in that kind of a, a range. You know, I had a colonoscopy a couple of years ago that I hadn't inquired a lot about, and the GI person sent it off for all kinds of tests, and it ended up costing seventy five hundred dollars. Um, now, yeah, I should have been prudent and, and asked about the merits of all these, you know, genomic tests and so forth. And of course, my insurance picked up almost all of it and my flex fund picked up part of it. So it didn't hurt me much, but that would have sunk most of the families I took care of. Um, even just the copay and deductible would have if they were insured. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to start somehow figuring out how to be better servants of our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in old age, that's a quite inequitable community. I mean, Medicaid, at least in DC and, and in states with good Medicaid programs, does have a decent safety net. Um, but the average African-American family hits retirement age with one-tenth of the assets that the average white family does. Mm. So we are working with the effects of a lifetime of reduced opportunities. <laughs> um, you know, women obviously also have a big hit. It's only about half. <laughs> women get half of what men do at the time of retirement. So you know, we have to really learn to work with our communities. My parents were GPs in West, in, um, West Virginia. And you know, before insurance was commonplace, only the minors had insurance and everybody else did not. And families had to make really tough choices. You know, if mom went to the hospital, it meant that junior didn't go to college. Yeah. Um, so in the absence of insurance, even in a much more prudent medical care system, the doctor had to really be thoughtful about what they were imposing on their community. Oh. Um, and we've lost that. And instead are just, as I say, sort of feeding at the trough um, with an entitlement in Medicare and kind of the echoes of that throughout all of commercial insurance. So I'd really call on your students to be um, really eager to stay abreast of Kaiser Health News and you know, get to know your uh, Congress people and your senators and your local representatives and your state representatives and, 
and counted as part of the overhead of working in this arena is that you really must be engaged in change. Mm -hmm. That we face having half of middle-class Americans unable to afford housing, food, and medical copays by the end of this decade. We really need to be speaking up and finding the solutions. I've been working the last year and a half as a volunteer in Congressman Tom Swasey's office, um, developing the WISH Act, which just got introduced last week. Um, and it's a way in which a small tax on wages would develop a social insurance that would um, uh, provide for coverage of catastrophic long-term care, uh, which is defined differently depending on your lifetime income. So most people would only wait a year or a year and a half but very high income people would, send, would wait four to five years um, to, before they would get this benefit. And it's a $3,600 a month benefit. So it's a substantial supplement to your social security at the time in which you're quite disabled. So it would ho hold a lot of families together um, in a way that we don't do now. Um, so you know, I, I certainly have not done all that I think I should have done. Um, but uh, colleagues around me, I think, do so much less that you know, we, we don't write to our congressmen. We don't buttonhole them when they do their um, tours of local care. You know? um, and we don't even have convergent ideas. I mean, there's all this enthusiasm right now for home and community-based services, which are terrific. I mean, that's a lot of what I did. But they also are desirable in a way that nursing home isn't. So home and community-based services, if made an entitlement, balloon incredibly. You know, I mean, I'd take home and community-based services today. Sure, <laughs> come help me make supper. Um, but I wouldn't take a nursing home. So um, where is the conversation about what limits to place on home and community-based services? I've tried getting it started in various places and it's like I'm, you know, um, uh, I don't know, uh, speaking scatological language or something and nobody wants to touch it. Uh, but we have to have some limits. You know, 20, 24 hour day care costs a quarter million dollars a year. Oh. We are not going to put a quarter million dollars a year into lots and lots of elderly people. We might put it into 30 year old lawyers you know, or 30 year old businessmen or something um, who really can operate as as ordinary um, normal roles if they have somebody helping them, but we are certainly not going to be that. But then what's a home and community-based services entitlement? For a while, it'll be limited by the workforce. I mean, you can't actually implement the entitlement if you can't um, get somebody able to work. But in the long run, that's a really dangerous idea. And yet it's terribly popular and there are multiple bills on the Hill to um, implement it. Um, by very respected people. And so where in our field is there that conversation? Well, there's, it's not in palliative care and it's barely in geriatrics. EGS, the American Geriatric Society, finally came out against aducanumab, <laughs> the new Alzheimer's drug, and has a statement opposing its uh, FDA approval and is now working to try to get CMS to uh, make it a very limited um, benefit under Medicare. Uh, which I think is a very good thing for geriatrics to do. But geriatrics has to be the weakest professional organization in medicine. <laughs> We're actually losing people and the average geriatrician is over 50 years old. So you know, uh, the, um, 
sort of where is the advocacy? I've talked to AARP and their only advocacy is saving social security. There are some other topics that you might might want to weigh in on. That one's very important, but you know, um, don't make it your only thing. And they've made it their only thing um, for the coming. um, So you've talked a little bit though about your work and I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned, I mean, it is kind of amazing that we haven't done more with nursing homes in palliative care. I mean, we know hospices consult, but you don't see very many specialty teams at a, at a nursing home, right? Unless it's a hospice coming in. And there's this weird mix um, that, you know, you hear people saying, well, the turnover is too much, both for home health aides or directors of nursing or medical directors, it's not worth our time. But we have said that for like 10 years. So the question in my mind is, you know, for our students, like this seems to be something we need to think about. And and I think your comments about, we have an interesting place because, you know, nursing homes kind of have this negative view and yet, we think it's okay that older adults keep getting admitted to the hospital, right? Because we don't value any sort of custodial care or supports. So what is your thought about like the role that, I think hospice to me has a more of a role because they have a benefit and they'll go in. But what's kind of the role with palliative care, do you think? Oh, good nursing homes are offended by generally having to use hospice because they do it themselves. and. And the hospice people come in as missionaries and arrogant and well-paid and they push aside the nursing home folks who know these people and who've been family for a year or five years in some cases. Um, So there really needs to be a much more cooperative endeavor where the hospice folks um, and the nursing home folks agree on whether hospice is consulting or whether hospice is taking over or, you know, sort of what's going on here. Um, The way that it's funded makes it very awkward. Um, you know, the, um, the hospice benefit is um, almost equal to the nursing home benefit and, and yet they aren't paying the room and board, they aren't paying the rent, they aren't paying for you know, the air conditioning and the roof and the food. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a troublesome entity, but the bigger issue it seems is we have a very large number of people who are going to live a long time with serious illness and disability. And they are going to use um, family care, they're going to use home care, they're going to use hospital care and ER care and nursing home care and assisted living and, and foster care and all sorts of things. We have no entity that looks at the overall experience and can tell you how people are doing in your county or your city. Every other country has that. Every other country sees this as a population that is incorporated in the city or the county, or in some cases, you know, the, the parish or the state or whatever. Um, but it, it has an entity that bears responsibility for the quality and cost of care. And is watching for things like equity and is watching for things like you know, um, in, inadequate service. Instead, we have a very provider-oriented system. We pay by provider. We develop quality measures by provider. Um, we don't have any locus at which we look at the overall experience of patients and families. You can't tell how many families are being driven bankrupt in your county. You can't tell how many had to leave work. 
You can't tell uh, how many elders are abused. Um, in most parts of the country, you can't get an autopsy now um, unless it's a homicide or, you know, or something like that. So there's no check on how many people are dying with terrible pressure ulcers, you know, or neglected. Um, and you know, so we really need, it seems, to generate a way to see that. Um, I and my team have developed uh, almost a thousand data elements for every county in the country from Medicare data using OASIS, the home care assessment, MDS, the nursing home assessment, and the claim stream, and the census and the area deprivation index and the um, health services resources uh, indexes that the American Hospital Association generates. And so you can actually see how your county shapes up on things like um, pressure ulcers, readmissions, um, uh, nursing home days, um, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, there still are some big gaps. We, we can't see the effect on caregivers because of course nobody measures that. <laughs> but um, it begins to show whether your county, I mean, we have one county where 40% of people in fee-for-service Medicare um, who are duals are getting benzodiazepines, a drug that should generally not be used in the elderly at all. And um, you know, that county ought to really step up and start seeing what they're doing and drugging all these people. Um, so beginning to develop the capability of seeing whole populations, I think is a piece of where we need to go um, and palliative care needs to participate in that. But palliative care in the medical arena um, is mostly a hospital-based endeavor and mostly does um, goals of care and symptom management. And that's very good. I'm not decrying that at all. That's a very good thing. But it means that whoever is trying to do comprehensive care management is being disabled if they call in palliative care for the family conversations, because now the, the consultant is getting the goals of care and the people who need to implement it are often not at the table because this is being done in the hospital <laughs> and it's actually being implemented in the community. Um, so we need some sort of vision of how geriatrics, rehab medicine, palliative care, are going to begin to take care of this large and growing population. Now, I, I work mostly with elders or people who are at least kind of over 50, um, but the same sorts of things happen with children and young adults who become um, seriously disabled, uh, whether it's from substance use or from genetic illness or you know, cerebral palsy or whatever. The, um, we all draw from the same well. <laughs> and, the average um, practitioner doesn't even know whether there's a wait list for Meals on Wheels. I doesn't have any idea what the resources are in their community. I've asked probably 50 people around the country, well, do you ever use adult protective services? And the usual answer is a rolling of the eyes. Oh, you know, I tried once and all they did was to alienate the family from me and, and put the person in a worse position because adult protective services is so underfunded that they could only step in where a person is about to be beaten. You know? and, and simple neglect is really hard to understand. It's hard to get to know, it requires multiple visits. And 
um, and, and establishing trust and uh, they aren't funded for that. But who's speaking up for adult protective services? <laughs> who even knows that that's the circumstance? So, you know, that's kind of been my frustration is that palliative care has um, developed a niche. It's very valuable in that niche. Um, much of the research has been very helpful. Um, you know, it, it has supplemented the traditional gerontological research and, and rehab and disability research um, very substantially. And I appreciate that. But going forward, we are going to have a tremendous number of people who cannot afford the basics. And we are going to be picking up the pieces for homeless 90 year olds who can't feed themselves. And you know, we can see that clearly. Um, and uh, we just choose not to. We choose to continue to take our salaries for nine to five jobs, five days a week, and not deal with who's gonna take care of the Saturday at, you know, at 5 p.m. crisis where the caregiver falls down the steps and breaks her wrist. And now what in the hell are you gonna do? And who can you call? And um, we, we could be planning for this, but no, we don't. <laughs> so given all that, what advice would you give to our PhD graduates who hopefully will shape the future in palliative care. To spend, to assume that it's, it's sort of like the biblical injunction for tithing, to assume that you ought to be spending 10% of your time changing the circumstances of your work. And you know, if you're working in a PACE program and it's terrific and it's wonderful and it's only serving 10% of the, of the potentially eligible people in your community, that's a problem. You need to be speaking up about it. If you can't get transportation in some parts of your county, you need to be speaking up about it. It's, it's an overhead cost in our work. And yes, you have to work in the arenas where you can you know, make the money to keep your home intact and, and, and where you can have a reasonable work-life balance. Um, and, uh, and yet, I think you want to really work in a really good team and those teams need to be supported they need to be geographic and they need to be speaking to power and uh, speaking to power in very strong terms. You know, we need to be able to say to powerful people, you're doing it wrong. You're feeding at the trough in a way that you ought to be embarrassed about. Now, how is it that nursing home managers and owners are taking home million dollar salaries and paying their aides insufficient to get off food stamps? I mean, it's, it is, unconscionable for the leadership in medicine and long-term care and insurance to be making this kind of money. Remember the admonition that I had when I first left medical school in 1970, well, probably residency in 77, that you should be aiming to earn about twice what a school teacher earns. I think we should say anybody making a majority of their income from public resources should not be making more than, let's say, an NIH PhD, which right now is set at something like $190,000 a year. Let's just put a cap on it. Um, you know, I, th I don't think it's mostly that. I think it's that expecting to make that kind of money distorts your dedication to the people involved. Um, I used to take medical students on uh, home visits and I would leave the stethoscope in my car deliberately and I'd say, after we've been there a few minutes, I'm going to remember that I lost my stethoscope. Come with me when I go back to get it. 
we'd go in and you know get settled and talk to the family a minute and, um, and to the patient. And I'd say, ah, oh, you know, I forgot my stethoscope. John, you know, come with me. We're, we'll run out and get it. We'll be right back. As soon as we left the apartment, I'd say, start telling me all the things you've already learned. And it was always more than the trip to the car and back. <laughs> and I'd say, just remember, you could not have learned that in the office. Right. It's very important to get to know your people where they live, to do enough home visits to know how people are living, to know what it looks like to be in an apartment with lead paint falling off the walls, to know what it, what it is like for people to look at each other when you talk about an expensive drug with a 20% copay. You know, um, the uh, people look very different in the office and they look very different in the hospital <laughs> where you don't even have their clothes on. <laughs> right. So, um, so that's what I would tell you students is to really engage with the community. We have big problems. We need big solutions. We need people willing to, you know, chain themselves to the doors of the Humphrey building and to, and to raise their voices, or at least to support the people who are willing to. I keep telling my geriatrics colleagues and my palliative care colleagues, be a member of Consumer Voice. Send them money. You know, send money to um, the Medicare Rights Center. You know, we have so few voices that are willing to speak up for our patients and clients that you know, we really need to be participating with them um, you know, most of the disease organizations are fronts for pharma. Uh, you know, you have to be very thoughtful about uh, supporting, you know, the cancer groups and the Alzheimer's groups and so forth. They are getting most of their money from pharma. Actually, many of the professional groups are actually getting most of their support from the parties that are making so much money. And we don't have, you know, a union voice. <laughs> that would speak on behalf of the caregivers and the people who are right now suffering. And I keep hoping to build a, a union of caregivers um, that would speak up, that would you know, be willing to go. But the caregiver groups, the four caregiver groups that work nationally have been willing to take the crumbs from the table. You know, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for raising the Older Americans Act by, you know, 8% this year or 10% this year, when it is behind by 100%. <laughs> um, you know, we need more stridency. We need Maggie Coon. <laughs> wow. So anyway, yes, palliative care does good work. Research is doing good work. It's very important that those things continue, but it's also important that we change the circumstances of our work. And you know, if you go to the AAHPM, agendas for the last three or four meetings, you will find it very scarce for anyone to be talking about these issues. Um, even in the public policy um, meetings, they do not, they talk about funding for teens. Yeah, that's important. But it's also important that we stop um, having no funding for meals. Yeah. Well, Connie, I find one of the most shocking studies is uh, more than a meal. Go look at it online, more than a meal. It's a study done by Brown University, elegant study, three arms, um, people who got meals on wheels, people who got food delivered that was frozen in a microwave, and people who got nothing. And what's shocking is that they recruited eight cities with more than a six month waiting list for meals on wheels, and then capitalized on it by having people get nothing 
while being in the study. That should chill us. That should really upset us. A, that there are cities with six month waits for food delivery and B, that we would build research on the backs of people who are getting no food delivery. Yeah, almost um, like a placebo study, right? Um, in a certain sense of giving them nothing, but wow. I mean, you have brought up so many interesting things of, um, I think this part of community and this social action part that we haven't heard from. Um, and I think, you know, of really that part for, our PhD students to step up and be leaders and, and really think about that. And, and maybe that's one of the things um, Lynn will need to think about, um, thinking about a whole policy part of mm -hmm. an advocacy part. So we may be in touch with you again soon, but um, this has been a wonderful um, range of kind of where you got involved and where you're still involved because you're still passionate. It's very clear and we still need your voice. So thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. Um, Lynn, do you want to, any other last minute comments? No, I think your, your work is prolific. Everybody should read Handbook for Mortals as well as your <laughs> other works. And uh, thank you for your advocacy in our field. We appreciate it. Get them to read Medicare and Communities yeah, and, I, improve, I, and improve on it. <laughs> You've got one, two, three, four, five books. Is that right? Do I, did I get them all? Oh, I don't know. Might be. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I once tallied them up. I have 80 books and chapters. At one point, I had the end of life chapter in every medical textbook, but I quickly um, devolved them to junior partners because it's really boring to keep writing the same thing. <laughs> the only one I've kept is the Merck Manual because it is free online and is. I mean, even my chapter is consulted more than a million times a year. That's amazing. That's it's amazing. just such a remarkable resource in third world countries where they now have internet, but not books. Yeah. And the Merck Manual is the standard in poor countries around the world. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have a special devotion to that. <laughs> but, uh, um, but otherwise, I'm hoping that the um, younger generation will... Um, relearn activism, or at least the support of activism. If you can't find it in yourself to do it yourself, at least know who's doing a good job and send them money and support and write letters on their behalf. Um, it's, it's very important that we don't end up at 2030 in the same place we are in 2021. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. We're very appreciative. Connie, anything last thing from you? No, thank you very much. Well, right. and, and we appreciate your leadership and the fact that you've developed a, a program and you know, good luck with it. I hope it thrives enormously. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.